History on the Rocks is pretty straightforward. Basically, we're finding a way to make you think history is as interesting as we do. And that starts with getting drunk and doing the research for you. We're making custom drinks, tying them to the subjects we're discussing, like the crazy Frankenstein shit scientists were actually doing in the 1800s, and just having a good time discussing topics that were probably left out of your history class. <laughs> Cheers. You can start over. It's, yeah. So the Celts were a, uh, a sort of unified, sort of not unified group of, you know, for lack of a better word, tribes of people that, you know, came about, came onto the scene around 500 B.C., um, they started in in the Alpine region and central France and parts of northern Spain. And, you know, throughout the third century, they had groups all the way from Hungary to Ireland. Um, they, you know, had a pretty good hold on that area. I mean, they weren't like one united people, so it's kind of hard. It's, we can't think of it in the same way as we would think of a nation today. But they were very well established all across Europe. Um, and then in the second and first century, they started to feel pressure from the German, Germanic tribes, later on from the Romans. Um, and eventually what we have left of Celtic culture today remains only in Ireland and parts of the British Isles. Um, so Irish, the language, Welsh, um, that that kind of stuff is pretty much all we have left. So like they're not a unified people. Why did, Why do we call them Celt? What's the unifying well, it's identifier. not us who really are calling them Celts. It's the fact that history is written by the victors, and in this case, the victors are the Roman Empire. And we had uh, historians like Tacitus who um, are writing about the Celts, and they're not necessarily super sen- uh, culturally sensitive. So basically, they're like, oh, and all these people over here, they were they're, they're going to call them Celts because they sort of call themselves Celts. They also called them Gauls or Gallic tribes is the word that's mm-hmm. used to describe the similar people. Um, and basically the unifying factor, factor here is the culture, cultural aspect that kind of links all these tribes together via you know, burial practices and unique art and those kinds of identifiers. But Well, there's also just a bit of mystery in general that surrounds the Celts, partially because they were primarily an illiterate society, so they don't have their own records. It's just oral tradition, and then what we know of what the Romans have said about them. And what's interesting is that there's this really great quote that we ran across um, from Tacitus uh, where he says, quote, "...who the first inhabitants of Britain were, whether natives or immigrants, remains obscure." One must remember we are dealing with barbarians. Of course. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> such a Roman view of the world. That's and so it's kind of... Such an any invader anywhere yeah. way of looking at the world. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I um, will but too. But I think it's and also... Yes, yeah, so well, I think I. Will, yeah. <laughs> yeah, But it is, it, it is like a little bit disingenuous to say that they were illiterate, though, because they did have language. And just because they're not like writing down their own history, because that wasn't a priority to them, like they were doing a lot of things that were, you know, high culture. Right. And, yes. and the Romans, too, are, they're very, they're opportunistic, and they are conniving, so they know that in order to, like, motivate people to be okay with them going to war in the Senate and in the public, that they need to portray these people barbarians. Mm-hmm. Because, basically, they're not part of Roman society, but they're very much, like, have similar social structures, politics. And, and, and what Tori mentioned just a second ago about some of the very sophisticated views of art and literature, even the Romans acknowledged they were impressed by because these scholars, these druids who would spend decades of their lives memorizing oral histories, the Romans were amazed by their ability for memory because, of course, they weren't writing things down and the Romans obviously had a writing system. And so they weren't looking at you know the memorization of text as, as a, as a skill set that they had. And they were really impressed by... The Celts who did that. 
And just to put that in perspective, like when I, I remember when I was studying the ancient Romans in school, like Cicero was famous for being able to memorize entire like hour long speeches mm-hmm. and, and books that he read. And so the fact that he and other Romans were impressed by the Celts ability yeah. to memorize <laughs> like hours long books, basically, that's kind of crazy. And for us today, like if it's longer than 140 characters, I have trouble retaining it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys like this week? I had a hard time this week with the Celts. Yeah, I I was doing a little bit of procrastination. Ellen <laughs> finished a, a book like two hours ago. <laughs> She's still reading it right now. I'm not. I finished I finished the pages that had the words on them. Uh, no, I mean it was it was a little tough. I think we, we were discussing this a little bit earlier that the, the text, the source text we used, um, was pretty poorly organized. And there's a kind of this modern idea of what the uneducated or the uninformed person would say, oh yeah, the Celts, I know what that is. You know, there's yeah. the Irish and the, you know, infinity knots and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But um, the author of, our, of the novel that we, or the, of the text that we began with started by saying everything you know is wrong and then never told us like where he was going. <laughs> or exactly why it's wrong. Yeah. Or, or what, see, my issue coming into this, and, and just so everybody knows where we are, we read The Celts by Barry Cunliffe and it's part of, Oxford's very short introductions. So we figured we'll get a very short introduction to the Celts and who they are. And so yeah, he starts off with everything you know is wrong about the Celts. Yeah. And then I'm like, I don't really know much about the Celts. I'm, I want you to tell what is the popular <laughs> belief about the Celts. My exposure to the Celts and Celtic people is that it's mostly Irish. And I know like the Boston Celtics. There's a soccer team in Scotland called the Glasgow Celts. Like that's my awareness of the Celts. I didn't realize there was a whole sort of fetish for them. Also. Well, interestingly enough, uh, we were, I was just in Portsmouth recently, and they actually have, I think, three like Celtic history gift shops on the same street <laughs> in downtown rem- Portsmouth. I don't wow. remember walking past these places. No, we don't. You, I think, actually, Marco, you were, when we were up there, we, went, year, to we went to one of them. Yeah. Weirdest. And so just... Yeah, everything that you could ever imagine as being cliche Irish and Scottish. Pretty were in much the store. like everything on the the Isles of the British Isles, mm-hmm. except England. Like yeah. there was Welsh stuff, there was Scottish stuff, and Irish stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, maybe and that was all Celtic, quote unquote. So well, we can get into that later too. Is yeah. why that has happened, and eventually, you know, Cunliffe did sort of address why it has to do with kind of this romanticization of uh, the past great history of the warrior class or whatever that the, the people imagined back in the 1700s and 1800s and it really turned into this weird almost fetishization of yeah. of a totally incorrect view and, of these actual ancestors oh and do you guys did you find anything on why we say Celts, but like it's the boston celtics and the glasgow celtic uh tell us so yeah, I was because I was curious about this. Like, why is it pronounced incorrectly? Apparently, Celt and Celtic is technically the incorrect way. So before about 1900, it was always pronounced Celt or Celtic hmm. in in English. Um, but sometime yeah, in like the late 1800s, because there was a strong like independence movement in, in Scotland and Ireland, they wanted to differentiate it differentiate it from how the English were pronouncing it. So they started saying it with a hard C, Celt. And then we kind of hung mm. on to that. But sports teams like the Celtic in Glasgow and the Celtics were created in around 1900. So it was before that new pronunciation had caught on. So they used the old pronunciation in the name. So when you talk about the Boston Celtics and 
wonder why it's because it's actually a very old way of pronouncing the same word that's pretty cool yeah. it's pretty cool i wonder if it's at all related to how the romans would actually have said it anyway because the romans didn't have a lot of soft c's right wasn't it all supposed to be i was looking into this when i was reading on how to pronounce vulgar latin which is mm-hmm. like the actual vernacular spoken and I, I found um reference to basically they had no hard they had no soft c's so like cicero who you mentioned earlier would have been pronounced Kikoro. Kikoro. Kikoro, yeah. yeah. Which sounds like a character I mean, from Dragon Ball Z. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really call them Celtic at all, really, anyway. Like, mm-hmm. all the writing, the Romans call them the Gauls or Galli, Galli. Right. Um, so it, it doesn't, I don't think, really apply, just because they would be using a different word for the most part to talk about the same people. True. Yeah, I think they used the word Celtic occasionally, but yeah, it was mostly mm-hmm. the... Came from, I think there were some writings of, of Julius the... Caesar who talked about them as referring to themselves as, like, the Keltoi or something like that. Yeah, that was the Greeks. I think it was... Oh, was it the Greeks? K-E-L-T-O-I. Yeah, I think it, I think it was yeah. Herodotus mentions a, a specific tribe oh, right. called the yeah. Keltoi in what is Gaul. Um, but that's the only... What, this is the other thing I thought was interesting and frustrating about the book, is he very early on says that pretty much, like, before the 1800s when it became this, like, being Celtic, mm-hmm. nobody called themselves Celtic except this, like, one minor tribe in like ancient Greek times, the Celto. And after that, it's just sort of classical scholars or, you know, laymen referring to them as Celts. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was, I think the reason I struggle with this is like when he's talking about the Celts, I'm like, but you're not clear on who you're talking about. You're mentioning all these different tribes that don't seem to have too much of each other. Talk more about that. But I think that's where I kept being like, who are you talking about? Yeah, like, there wasn't a very unified story yeah. in this in this text. It was hard to, a little bit hard to follow. Talk a little bit about one of the that we read on, um, and that's this culture piece that we talked a little bit about. So there's um, like two main periods in this Celtic broad strokes history, um, and the first one is the Hallstatt culture. So that's where we get like the the f- the first instances of languages that are in identifiable language families, um, and then the second one is Latin, and um, Latin art is one of the only things that r- remains from that period that actually existed in that period as well so like that's where you see like what did you say the the knots Mm -hmm. like that kind of stuff and like very nature the loopy motifs and yeah yeah so what uh, what time period are we talking about so yeah latin culture evolved in the fifth century so this is like 200 years after and lasted almost through the roman invasions okay so fifth century right Yeah, yeah so we um the this like archaeologically was discovered in 1857 in Latin, Switzerland, which is why it's called Latin culture. Um, and it's defined by curvilinear designs, um, especially on metalwork and pottery. Um, and then later on, we get into more like nature motifs. Um, so this is like what you would consider Celtic art. If you're going to a right, Celtic right. gift mm-hmm. shop, this is like what you're going to be seeing. Simon James calls it the, the greatest glory of prehistoric Europe because it's this art form that's just completely different from what we know as classical artistic canon it doesn't really match up at all it comes a lot from you know like from the etruscans and so therefore from like mesopotamia so that artistic culture is drastically different than european art in quotation marks it's very sophisticated what they found archaeologically if i recall correctly yeah so not only that is the art sophisticated but the techniques as well so when we were talking about barbarism earlier they're not barbarians. Like these are some of the most sophisticated craftsmen in the entirety of Europe, like including the Romans. 
you know, they did a little bit of sculpture or whatever. Yeah. Actually, a really, <laughs> really cool thing I found, the BBC did an awesome series of documentaries on the Celts that talks mostly about the Celts in, in the British Isles, but uh, in Latin, Switzerland, apparently it was near a salt mine, and that was one of the big exports from the, these Celtic people in Latin. Because there would often be collapses in the mines, and you're surrounded by salt, there are very, very, and this connects back to last week's episode, preserve the body so well that they're very similar to the bog bodies and that like you can still see the skin and you can Great. see what they were wearing. Wow. Like some of the leather that they were wearing on like bags or satchels is still preserved so they know kind of what tools they were using to mine. It was really cool and I thought it, again it like makes them not seem like barbarians that they have this complex economy where they're mm-hmm. like yeah, mining a commodity to export. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's one of the ways that we have all of this knowledge of the Celtic people is that trade and they were really sophisticated so like even before the romans showed up at all like they that's how their culture propagated was through like very sophisticated trade networks so and that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult to determine who is actually you know celtic in quotation marks and who just like got a really cool ass sword (laughs) (laughs) traded for some salt because apparently they loved their cool ass swords oh they were really into the cool ass swords (laughs) every single grave had a a sword in it i Mm -hmm. think it was one of the essential uh burial items and even when groups of celts moved to asia minor that was one of the while they like absorbed a lot of the local culture that was one of the things that they did retain is their specific style of combat which was by the way to go with your cool last sword completely naked completely into naked. the fray. <laughs> and yeah. uh, they and their distinctive style sword they retained. Um, so even after they'd long settled in Asia Minor, they were still um, kind of very, very much connected to their historical methods of battle. Yeah, there's a really cool diagram in here of how they actually like put the swords together, and it's super complex. Back to this art thing, to talk about swords a little bit more. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about the like geometric curvilinear patterns. It evolved to be a lot more vegetal. So you'll see a lot of like palm mm-hmm. motifs and actually lotuses, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, some animal patterns and then distorted human faces, but no representation of like a human body at all, it's which is really heads. interesting. Only the faces. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were trying to speculate on whether that was like something that was a little bit taboo. Um, but so, do you mean taboo to show the bodies or taboo? Yeah, to to, to depict humans, maybe to depict humans. Or so like that's because because all the faces were super distorted too. Mm-hmm. So I don't I mean who knows really. One of the things related to that that I thought was really interesting is that apparently a common post battle ritual was to decapitate the enemies and display their heads really prominently. So there's like this this obsession with the head. Yeah, I wonder if those are related. I don't actually know, but it could very well be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, most of the art that we get is not this like art for art's sake that is now the main form of art, um, but really portable art. Things that would display the status of the person that owned this item. So like a sword, for example, lots of weapons, um, things that help you have a really kick-ass feast. They loved feasting. Yeah. Feasting and fighting. Feasting <laughs> and drinking wine. Yeah. Um, the We have a quote from Diodorus Siculus, who is like one of the main hist- Roman historians that we get a lot of this information from. And the quote is, the Gauls are exceedingly addicted to the use of wine and they fill themselves with it, drinking it unmixed, which apparently was huge. Yeah. yeah. It was common in Rome to water it down a little bit. Yeah, uh, make it go a little longer, but the basically, Celts drank it straight. The Celts were the Robert Baratheon of <laughs> <Exactly>. prehistory. <laughs> 
So they had, the, yeah, they had this reputation for being really aggressive, fierce, um, like berserker-like warriors. Mm-hmm. Although that's a term that's mostly associated with Vikings, but they would go into battle naked with their awesome swords. You know, they would drink entire flagons of wine in a sitting at their feasts. So they had this image of just being these wild, incredible warriors. Yeah, and one of the other things that um, is sort of barbaric about them is this, like, displaying your wealth. Because the Romans, like, were not into that at all. They thought Mm. it was, like, super gaudy. Mm -hmm. And it was really, like, I read about how Caesar tried to wear long sleeves once. And everybody was like, dude, what the fuck, Caesar? Why are you wearing a long sleeve shirt right now? (laughs) Wasn't he supposed to be a little bit of a... A fop. Yeah. (laughs) He was foppy, but he was also one of the greatest generals who ever lived. Fop-ish. Fop, I'm sorry, fop-ish. Excuse me. (laughs) Very technical language here. He's Uh, a bit of a dandy. (laughs) Yeah, he was, but he was also an amazing general Mm -hmm. and a badass. I think all the Romans were a little bit foppish, to be honest. He was especially so. I I remember, uh, and uh, if you haven't already checked it out, check out Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast on the fall of Rome. He talks a lot about Julius Caesar, but he would apparently wear like sort of poofy sleeves. Hmm. Uh, like with a lot of frills on it, and this was seen as completely. Everybody thought like, he was really it. weird, so that's right. probably probably added to uh, the opinion of the Celts with right. their you know jewelry and gold and bronze everywhere. But th- the best part of that story is the young men of Rome who liked Caesar started emulating the style, so he did become like a, a trendsetter. So you had all these like younger guys who were clean shaven and wearing these like poofy sleeves and like no belt around their tunic it was how dare very they? scandalous no belt yeah that is some danger zone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> clothing i will keep my belt no belt on <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so the the celts were not barbaric at all really people have done research to try to like emulate what it would have been like to run a forge in this time like so like 400 bc um and it takes a lot of work so like they didn't know how to melt iron this is still this is still forging right so, so like they, bronze age, bronze, right? bronze yeah, age yeah right? it's, it's softer easier to work with, well it yeah. is but they they used iron um oh, okay. they didn't not use it they just couldn't smelt it so it's all forging meaning heating something up really hot okay. hitting oh. it with a hammer so, so they couldn't make fires hot enough to melt it right well they okay. didn't know, they didn't and, know and how to, it. Okay, to do yeah. that right so um, it took a lot of skill, a lot of time, and a lot of just like brute strength and energy to do any of this. Like all these artisans were really probably placed in a really high position in society. Um, same with goes for woodworking, a lot of crafts and tools and buildings, and they even had ships too that were really very well built. And so we're thinking that probably their their smiths and their woodworkers and their ar- other artisans were really had a high place in society. And you mentioned before the the concept, the portable. And I think that's really important when talking about the Celts too, because while they were, um, they were really widespread, they were also widespread because they were a raiding culture. Um, so they were, they had, you know, home bases, but part, they would go and they would, you know, raid villages and trading posts and take the goods back. And sometimes, um, which is also part of the reason we have artifacts from all over Europe, is because they did get around. And so that when you mentioned before, you're talking about the Vikings and the berserker thing, that was one of the stronger impressions I got of when I was reading and doing research into the Celts is it was kind of like a very, a lot of Viking like imagery, it seemed to me, um, not that necessarily that they're connected, but just some of the similar ideas of the the feasting and the raiding parties and this yeah. really elaborate art. I wonder how much of that is a product of the again the, the perspective of who's yeah. writing about them. So with the Vikings, it's usually the like settled arist- aristocratic communities of Europe writing mm-hmm. about like these Viking raids. And here with the 
the Celts, it's the Romans. Yeah. Writing about these barbarians on the fringe who have to be subdued and would like raid their towns. One of the things that kind of set the stage for the you know, decline of the Celts, Celts, Celticae. We'll say Celts. I mean, we'll, <laughs> we'll use the, the current English pronunciation. Yeah. yeah. So they, they did start to develop and they did start to, um, they weren't settled in towns, but they call them proto-towns. So that, that this allowed them to like have highly skilled craftsmen and you know specialize in certain things and do animal husbandry and all those kinds of things. And this is one of the things that kind of made them ripe for conquest by the at, from a Roman point of view. So it wasn't because they were so drastically different. It was because their society was fucking rich. It was really complex, and they were really sufficiently similar to the Romans that it was going to be pretty easy for them to you know maybe assimilate. Once Caesar got everybody subdued, life didn't really change very much for most people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the last century of BC, um, there was a lot of population growth. There was a lot of innovations in farming, innovations in different kinds of cultures that kind of allowed them to settle down. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of maybe what led to not the death of the culture, but more of a hybridization. And that's how I feel like. The, this culture has died out in places where they were invaded and it's probably mm -hmm. still relevant in like the only place that wasn't invaded, which is Ireland, but they were, they were pretty similar to the Romans. And for the most part, you know, with some pretty glaring exceptions that we are going to talk about today, the Romans, like you said, were pretty willing to just let them do their thing. And the decline of the Celts really came with the decline of the Romans because as soon as the Roman Empire wasn't there anymore and you had the Visigoths and the Franks and the tribes, that's why, like you said a second ago, those guys didn't make it out to, out to yeah. the British Isles. And so the Celts that were there were able to remain for a long time, at least until Christianity. So. Yeah. One thing I want to make sure I mention, because it was huge for what Barry Cunliffe was talking about in his book, because you mentioned that they were very skilled shipbuilders. The the Celtic tribes who lived in Armorica, which is modern-day Brittany, and along the coast and uh, in the British Isles, they were sailors. They had to trade over the water a lot. And that one of the key arguments that Cunliffe makes is that it was this Atlantic community between sort of the coast of France and Spain uh, in northern Europe, northwestern Europe, and the British Isles, that that built a unified culture. So because they were always trading and they were communicating across the sea, and they would use uh, the rivers like the Seine or the Rhine to move inland, that these pe these were a people connected by waterways. And I thought that was really cool. And this is this is actually an idea that's sort of it's popular in history right now in sort of like English colonial times, like the the sixteen hundreds and seventeen hundreds. We talk a lot about. Atlantic networks or the Mediterranean networks that existed between Italy and North Africa. So there's a lot of interest in this right now. And I, I thought, if anything, that's one really interesting thing that he brought to talking about the Celts is that there's this sort of seaborne culture that united them. And because these people were on the fringes and weren't the ones who were uh, conquered as early as the others, they were sort of on the fringes of the Roman Empire. That's where you see the culture survive beyond the Roman period. So you have Cornwall in England, you have Wales, Scotland, Ireland, right on the edges where Celtic languages still survive. Right, and that, correct me if I'm wrong, Marco, but the Armorican people from Brittany, those are the people that uh, first did the, the migrant to the British Isles, became Welsh. Yeah, I, they, I think what Cunliffe says is that it was the, I believe you pronounce it, Celtiberians, the Celts from Iberia, oh, modern yeah. day mm -hmm. Portugal and Spain that moved up into what is the Irish island. And yeah, you had Armoricans going into 
the sort of main British island. Yeah, and this is where yeah. the language, distinctive bits of language comes into play because this is pretty much the only way that we can clarify like which group is coming from where is by the integral differences of the language right. they spoke. And of course, we don't have very much left. Like we don't have any recordings of, you know, fourth, right. fifth century BC. But there's a lot of language study now on, on these Celtic languages. And one of the things they can trace is that the... Celtic languages like Irish Gaelic is has its roots from certain Iberian tribes, and then like what's spoken in uh, Cornwall or in Northern Scotland is closer to what was spoken on continental Europe, like France and that area. So that's where they trace the language lines. So yeah, the Romans. They Here just... we are. It's fifty BC. <laughs> what the fuck is happening? I think the cat was snoring. That's um, <laughs> that's our mascot, Brutus the cat. Very strong Roman name. He's sleeping in the corner. Oh, he's oh he's waking up. He knows we're talking. So you actually have to go. <laughs> he was named after the murderer of Caesar. Brutus. Yeah. Yes. It, do you expect him to betray you? Well, well he, he did. Does. <laughs> does he betray him? The first, so we were re- we rescued him, right? And then he bit us. <laughs> also, quite first literally, he... bites the hand that feeds. <laughs> yeah, I was petting him before, and like it was nice. He was nuzzling, and then all of a sudden, he was just like. He started scratching me. Oh, he scratched you? That's really great. That's a lot of progress. He didn't use claws. He didn't use claws, but he was like, he's getting ready. Yeah, no, he doesn't do a lot of the clawing. He he mostly just sinks his teeth into your delicious man flesh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) What would your um, Roman slash Celtic battle name be? Probably just my actual name. (laughs) Kellinox? Kellinix? Phil, I think. (laughs) Phil the Brave? Phil the Brave. Phil the drunk would be my name. Yeah. I would carry an amphora of wine with me into battle. Amphora and, of wine. And an axe in Would you have hand. paid a slave for that amphora of wine? I would, oh yeah. <laughs> We're talking like gold bronze inlaid with some coral red glass. Fancy. It's a nice yeah. amphora. Made by <laughs> Celtic <laughs> artisans <laughs> of Latin. <laughs> so you actually have to go much further back to understand the Romans real like big interactions with the Celts. The the big event happens like 50 BC, and I'll, I'll get to that eventually. The but big bang, if you will. The big bang. But, but the Celts had a history of major migrations, or migrations as classical scholars saw them. So the first big migration that was felt by the Greeks, uh, and then the Romans wrote about it, happened about in the 600s, 500s BC. That's when I think the big move, first movement was from Central Europe, from those areas like Laten, down into Greece, in northern Italy, and then some groups actually went to what's modern-day Turkey. So there's this big southward movement, and that's a lot of classical scholars' first exposure to Celts en masse, like in large groups. But did it get a little cold in northern Europe? So we don't know exactly why. It could have been that, but what they, what the classical scholars thought it was was actually overpopulation. So there were too many people, uh, and they just, because there's so much tension and they were a tribal society always raiding each mm-hmm. other, uh, raiding is fun when you can do it at a time of your choosing, but when you're constantly at war, that becomes a serious social problem. No time for drinking. Exactly. It or eats in, all the time it for eats drinking. Up your drinking time. That's friggin' awful. Well, so also raiding is not. It's not a finite resource. I mean, it is a finite resource. Like you can only. Right. You know, there's only so much wealth and riches and wine and women at a, a given village before you've you've pretty much tapped that. <laughs> right. Exactly. So raiding works if there's time in between and there's you have enough resources to go around so to speak 
So we have all these peoples coming down from Central Europe into Northern Italy and Greece and Turkey, causing a lot of turmoil for the Romans and Greeks. And we know this from early scholars like Polybius, who was writing about 200 to 100 BC, or 122 BC, that's when he lived. Uh, and then also Livy, writing much later from about 59 BC to 17 uh, they're AD. They're writing about they're 500 writing. BC? They're writing about, How yes. We assume they were using records they had access to that have since been lost to us. So they would also have been using Herodotus, right? Which we don't have. Right. We have a right. little bit of Herodotus, but really. not this Herodotus. We have a little bit, and then we have what's quoted in this. So, yeah. What is so sad? Just kidding. A lot of this yeah. is confirmed by archaeological research. <laughs> right. Right. The archaeological evidence does I think match up. There's and some embellishment like, that I'll actually get oh, into. Yeah, that, um, yeah. and, and Cunliffe mentions that the archaeological record matches up. So they attribute it to overpopulation that there were just too many people in Central and Northern Europe, and they needed more room to live and, and raid. And, Lebensraum. Yeah. Lebensraum, yes. The term introduced by the Nazis in the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Tori. Hail Hydra. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody saw the Avengers yesterday. We all did. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> there were skirmishes going on between... Uh, the early Roman Republic and these Celtic tribes moving in from the north and the Greeks talk about fighting them. And eventually what it seems like happened is these tribes are defeated by the Romans and kind of settle in the Po Valley. So that's northern Italy, what or what the Romans called Cisalpine Gaul. They settled there and they became these sort of border tribes. So not a major threat to the Romans. There would still be skirmishes every once in a while but not an uh, existential threat like they were when they first moved down into the Italian peninsula. They, became, um, they were mercenaries too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually in the Second Punic War. That's Hannibal mm-hmm. when he invades with the elephant army over the Alps and everything. He apparently recruited some Celtic tribes to help him out. Their reliability was not 100%. Uh, but he did use Celtic mercenaries. Yeah, but basically he was... So he's invading the Italian peninsula from the north. He crosses the Alps, and along the way he recruits Celts. So, And the Romans, too, would occasionally use Celts in mercenary armies when the Celts were willing to take payment or wine or whatever they wanted. And then at other points when it was opportune for them, they would attack the Romans. So it was a very kind of ambivalent relationship, as Rome had with many of its neighbors. And there was there were rebellions and uprisings occasionally. There was a, a very short-lived confederacy in about 279 B.C. that was pretty large, uh, and that was in Greece. Um, some of them, again, moved on to uh, Anatolia, Turkey, and settled there. So that's why we have uh, Celtic artifacts as far east as Turkey now. So that's the first major migration. The second big one, as it was reported by the Romans, would lead to the last great unifying of the Celtic peoples of Europe against the Romans. This was like their last great battle. And the last time they would really have any kind of... Uh, unified force against the Romans because again we have to remember these are a bunch of different tribes that probably wouldn't have identified with each other very much um they all had different sort of allegiances uh and sort of political intrigues between them but this second migration would lead to the great confederacy under Vercingetorix so Transalpine Gaul is the Gaul on the other side of the Alps it's across the Alps that's what trans means uh, so that's, we're talking around 121 BC now, so a couple hundred years after the first migration. What was going on in Northern Europe at the time was a lot of Germanic tribes were moving south uh, and west into other parts of Europe. So we know where modern Germany is. The Germanic tribes were moving across the Rhine into Gaul, 
um, and south into Bohemia, Austria, Switzerland. Which are so, all lands where the Celts are, have, exactly. been, have been for, for years. Exactly. So they're putting a lot of pressure on these Celtic tribes. One famous sort of ordeal that Caesar writes about is the migration of the Helvetii, who were a Celtic tribe that previously had lived in Switzerland and decided because of this constant fighting with Germanic tribes and other Celtic tribes, they needed to find a new place to live. Is this where we get Helvetica, the font? That's a good question. The term we have for Helvetica, the font, comes from the Latin word Helvetica, which meant Swiss. So their name for the Swiss people was uh, Helvetii or Helvetica. So yeah, that's where that which, connection which comes from. Which probably actually came from this tribe that we're talking about, Right, and, which is and, pretty cool. Yeah, and Helvetica, the font, was invented by a Swiss guy. So yeah. So the Helvetii are feeling this pressure from these Germans coming from, from the north and en masse, like tens of thousands of Helvetii are moving south. Now they know that they have two paths to get in sort of northern Italy. They can go west through other Celtic territories and go around the Alps. There's, there's mountain passes they can go. Or they can head directly south, but that territory in northern Italy is controlled by the Romans. They actually... Um, sent a message to Caesar saying, hey, we want to use this mountain pass to cross into Italy. We're basically peaceful. We don't mean to start any fights. And Caesar deliberately delays responding to this message. And while they're waiting for a response, he builds like defensive fortifications in this mountain pass so there's no possible way they can just get through. What an asshole. And then his yeah. answer is basically them arriving at the mountain pass, seeing all these fortifications and taking it as you know, pretty much a middle finger. So he just Caesar. built a giant middle finger. Right. But this is Caesar's whole thing. He, he was trying to provoke a response and they did exactly what he wanted them to do. So they attacked the fortifications. Caesar, you sly fox. So, yep. So now he has his no pretext. Belt, his puffy sleeves. Yep, he has this pretext that he's created to go to war with the Helvetii and turn them away from crossing. So he's kind of, he's doing a lot of this military and political swinging of his dick around pretty much to build up support back in Rome. So that's why he didn't wear a belt. Exactly. That you got to leave room for that like business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he then uses this to kind of, as a jumping off point for an entire invasion of Gaul. So he says, all right, the Helvetii have attacked us. I'm putting that in quotes because again, he sort of provoked them into But attacking. no one would ever know because he was probably the only person to get a copy of that letter. Exactly. And like exactly. No, His, and no media, no rules. Right, exactly. So as far as anyone knows, the Helvidii were unprovoked and just attacked this mountain pass. Um, and that sort of initiates his war on the Helvidii specifically and defeat of them. But then he uses that to go further, saying these Germanic tribes in northern Europe are a threat to all of Gaul. And if we as Romans don't take control, the Germans will. He has now justified an entire conquest of Gaul, uh, and this is his big move. So he moves in, and certain tribes like the Aedui are already uh, allied with Rome. Most tribes are not friendly to At best, they, they trade with them, and that's about it. Uh, but he sort of manipulates a lot of their internal beefs with each other and their disagreements to play them off one another, attack them one at a time so that they don't form a, like a mass force against him. One might even say divide and conquer. Exactly. Yeah. Divide <laughs> and conquer. There you go. Um, and this is, we're talking about uh, 60 BCE. So he pretty much conquers Gaul fairly easily. He doesn't face any like really major defeats at the hands of the Gauls or the Celts. Um, in 57 BC, he defeats the Belgae, who are the, the Belgic tribe in what is now modern-day Belgium. Um, then there are some rebellions uh, in 56 BC in Brittany, or Armorica. Then in 55 BC, I thought this was like a cool little story, so the Germans used the Rhine as their border, 
and they felt like because there's no clear river crossing there, pretty fast moving river, it's difficult to cross. It's huge. It's really, it's really huge. Yeah. yeah. It's just a really big river. So the Germans felt protected behind the Rhine. Caesar, just to prove a point to them and get them to stop harassing the Gauls because it was fucking up his conquest of Gaul, uh, he takes his legions to the Rhine, builds a bridge in like a matter of weeks, I think. Um, way faster than the, the Germans could get word of it and react to it. So by the time the Germans knew that the Romans are building a bridge across the Rhine and they show up, the bridge is already completed pretty much. And so Caesar crosses, he posts up his legions there. The Germans are completely unprepared for this and, and they retreat. And Caesar, having made his point to the Germans, crosses back over the Rhine and burns the bridge. So he, <laughs> Caesar literally just built this bridge to say, I can cross this whenever I want. Yeah. So you stay on your side, or I'm going to come back for you, pretty much. And it worked. Such it worked. Like the, the Germans like pulled back after yeah, that. Yeah, dude. Like we wonder why Caesar is so well known. This is why. We yeah. wonder why Caesar got stabbed in the back, and now we know. We should. He'd be a good fit for our presidents series. <laughs> Great presidents, Julius Caesar. And this is the whole thing with Caesar that gives him an advantage. Dan Carlin talks about this a lot, but his speed. He reacts very quickly to threats, as, pretty much as fast as humanly possible, and much faster than anybody would expect him to. So things like building a bridge in a, a week or two, that's pretty much classic Caesar. He's going to do something in, a, in an amount of time that you wouldn't think is even possible, and catches his opponents off guard, and this is going to come back to help him later on. But getting back to his conquest of Gaul, so by 53 BC, the, the Belgae are acting up again. So he is now, okay, I defeated you once. Now you're acting up again. You're ruining my conquest of Gaul, my, my pretty little prepackaged conquest of Gaul. Uh, and he's pissed at the Belgii, so he launches a scorched earth policy. Pretty much slaughters or sells into slavery every single Belgian, destroys their land, makes it unlivable, like wipe them off the map. And this is another thing that Caesar would do. He had no hesitation about completely destroying an enemy. A lot of people had scorched earth policies back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this attack on the Belgae stirs up a lot of unrest in Gaul because it's seen as completely unmerciful and unfair. And so a couple of Celtic tribes realize sort of what the Romans are doing, that they're going to take over all of Gaul. And this sparks the rebellion of 52 BC. Now this is where Vercingetorix comes in. The Celtic tribes are, they're tired of the Romans coming in destroying them one by one and they re they realize they can see the writing on the wall that if they don't do something now as a unified front that they're going to destroy they're going to be defeated and pretty much not ignore as as gauls or as celts so in the town of cenobum cenobum in 52 bc they round up every roman traitor and official and slaughter them and then uh one of caesar's lieutenants um Cicero's brother, actually, they encircle one of his encampments and they massacre his men. So they've already attacked a Roman nice. legion. Yep. Um, and it, this is interesting, too, that they killed all the traitors specifically. So the Romans kind of knew it then. And as historians see it as a very important tool for the Romans, that it was Romanization through trade. And this is kind of sort of a almost like a soft colonization of the Celtic peoples that you get them used to our methods, our economy our traders, we control the flow of wine and other goods to them. And so they become more amenable to our way of life. So we Romanize them. And so trade was actually a really important tool. And part of the reason uh, Caesar seemed so unforgiving to the Celts is that he expected them to sort of toe the Roman line because they had profited from this relationship. They got a lot of goods from the Romans. Romans got slaves and currency from them. So the fact that they were resisting 
the civilization of Rome to him was as offensive. So Vercingetorix is chosen as the leader of these united Celtic tribes. When he goes to war with the Romans, he enacts a policy of scorched earth against his own cities, against Celtic cities. So he either couldn't take them for them himself? So he couldn't take their resources, yeah, yeah. pretty much. So Caesar, from the beginning of his campaigns in Gaul, didn't want to have to maintain a supply line back to Roman territory. He wanted his army to be more mobile and to go wherever it needed to go. So his policy, logistically, was take resources from wherever we're invading. So they would take from towns, granaries, cities, whatever they needed. That was their supply chain. So they weren't tied to any one locality. They could move around freely. So Vercingetorix sees this and knows that he needs to sort of sacrifice his own resources just to prevent the Romans from resupplying. Vercingetorix maintains one city. It was one of their biggest cities called Avericum. Um, and this ends up being a huge mistake for him because the Romans lay siege to Avericum and take it. And this gives them enough foodstuffs and supplies to continue the campaign. Uh, and this was a pretty fast rebellion. It happens all within 52 BC. So it's, it's a few months long. Um, so the Romans, once they have these resources, can easily for the next few. I have the numbers here. It's insane. So this is like Caesar's account of the Gallic Wars. He talks about the the different tribes and how many men they sent. If his figures are to believe to be believed, he faced a total Gallic strength of about three hundred and fifty thousand men, including the trapped army that was fighting to escape. It is a remarkable testimony to both the scale of Gallic manpower and to the battlefield superiority of the vastly outnumbered Romans. Yeah, getting back to Avericum, so they take Romans have the resources from Avericum. Like they <laughs> they they move on to another major city, Dragovia, where uh, it was. Caesar won, but it was extremely costly for him. He lost a lot of men in that battle. But coming off of Dragovia, Vercingetorix retreats to the hill town of Elysia. So on this hilltop city, it's got a great vantage point. It's a strong defensive position, but because it's on a hill and it's uh, sort of flanked by two rivers at the bottom of the hill, it's very hard to resupply. Almost impossible if you don't have a defended supply line all the way out past the rivers. Caesar sees this, and being the opportunistic general that he is, builds fortifications around the entire city, walling them in. Yeah. Vercingetorix, once he gets to the hilltown, realizes that the Romans could put, lay, lay siege to them, but they could be defeated if an army came from their rear. So he sends out some of his cavalry units, which was actually a huge error, because cavalry are really good at disrupting infantry and keeping them from being able to maintain a position because the horses can charge in disrupt them so that would be a key unit for say preventing an army from building giant walls so he sends away a lot of his cavalry to request reinforcements from other celtic tribes and caesar takes the opportunity to turn the tables on vercingetorix alicia is now encircled in these wooden walls with guard towers. With spiky shit on the walls. Yeah, the walls were spiked so you couldn't easily climb over them. They were patrolled all hours of the day. So when Caesar realizes that about 60,000 or so um, Celtics or Celtic tribesmen are coming to reinforce Elysia, instead of abandoning his fortifications, he has his men build a second wall <laughs> further down the hill facing outward. So this is the craziest thing about the battle. The Romans are now fortified behind in a pretty much donut-shaped fortress. So they have Elysia on the inside, and then the first Roman wall keeping uh, Vercingetorix and his troops in, then the Roman camp, and then an outer wall keeping the reinforcing Gauls out. Caesar is completely committing himself to this hill because he can easily be surrounded around the hill. And he's got this force of, of Gauls who could come down on him from the top of the hill. But he manages, and there's an excellent 
excellent video online that traces this all out. It's on Historia Civilis's channel on YouTube. It's called Julius Caesar's Greatest Military Victory. I would recommend you go watch that, and I'll, I'll link to it uh, when we put up this podcast because it does an excellent job of explaining this. But he isn't just sitting back commanding his troops to go to different points in the wall. He's actually riding through the fortifications with his men and his cavalry. He's actively a part of the battle because what does he have to lose? He's trapped in here, so he mm-hmm. has to defeat the Gauls, and he does. He pretty much manages to at one point get some of his cavalry units outside the wall to come up again behind the reinforcements for Vercingetorix to disperse his cavalry. This um, this book says that Plutarch recorded that a million men died during the Gallic Wars and a further million were enslaved. Yep. Um, yeah. The land was devastated and stripped of its gold, which financed Caesar's bid for power in Rome and D.C. Oh yeah, he got a lot of plunder out of this. And there was a huge amount of loss of life. I think the estimate for the total population of Gaul was about six to seven million. So the fact that a million Gauls were killed in this war, that's a huge proportion. Um, so yeah, this was devastating for, for the Gauls there. So that that's the Battle of Elysia. And this, yeah, like you said, it pretty much establishes Caesar's strength. And, and Vercingetorix surrenders. He's taken back to Rome. And then years later, when Caesar has his triumph in Rome, uh, Vercingetorix is paraded through the streets of Rome as a great prisoner of war. And then instead of any kind of public execution, actually, the records we have say that he was strangled to death in his prison cell. There are conflicting accounts, but the main point is that uh, he was strangled to death. A couple different sources seem to confirm that. Um, and he languished for the last years of his life in a Roman prison cell until he was paraded out for, tri- for Caesar's triumph. Great life. So, and, th- and that's the end of any, that's the last unified Gallic or Celtic community um, for the rest of Roman history anyway. So Rome at that point controls Gaul. It's no longer a problem. It's uh, their staging ground for There's nobody conquest. in there. It's There's totally cool. A million no, I mean, people has died. They talked about, they, we read a lot about how they were they weren't totally decimated. I mean, like a lot of people died. They were actually more than decimated. Yeah. <laughs> if no. we so, want to go back to the original Roman definition of decimation. Well, yeah, but like a million. More than it. more than a tenth. Well, what would that be actually? It's like it's one sixth, one seventh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's still that's huge. Yeah. That a million people died. Yeah, it is. It is huge. But I mean, if we're if we're talking about all the Celts, like all over, like the culture still existed and the people still existed. They just weren't. They were never like independent as like a unified force in the way that we would right. describe it today. But they did exist. I they think. I, I they, think it the, wasn't over. I think the big point though is that because so many people were killed, because their alliance with each other completely failed, and because Roman victory was so complete, it ruined any chances they ever had of unifying against Rome again. I mean, um, it's, it's also yeah. worth noting that part of how they came to be unified in the first place mm-hmm. wasn't just because, um, you know, Vercingetorix was, oh, they decided, oh, yeah, now we're going to get together. It was actually like a, like a religious thing. It was because the Druids, every, you know, all of these different Celtic tribes had this incredibly strong Druid tradition. And I think, like, the seat of a regular Druid assembly was in, uh, I want to say, in, like, the Carnutes territory. It was, yeah. 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 And that, so, that's or, why those two tribes were exactly, the ones who yeah. rebelled first. Yeah. And so this, the them joining, building this alliance was hugely related to the fact that all of these just desperate groups um, shared the same Druid, you know, traditions. And so those Druid traditions continued, but like you said, they weren't able to really take action as a, any kind of unified nation right. as the way they did with Vercingetorix. Uh, so let's take a little break and we'll come back and 
and collect our thoughts for our, our final little talk about the Celts. All right, and we're back. We made a mistake earlier where oh, I was it? talking about how they didn't, how they only forged iron, and you said it was Bronze Age. And okay, just to kind of pick up from the last segment, wanted to kind of correct one thing I said. Vercingetorix's rebellion is sort of the last unified Celtic resistance to the Romans in continental Europe. So it was the end of a major political force that was Celtic in Europe. Their culture continued, and some of their language continued, but. Celticism would be felt much more strongly in sort of fringe areas further afield. Yes, such as the British Isles. Everybody kind of has a general idea is that, oh yeah, Britain invaded by Rome, Hadrian's Wall, etc., etc. And my story properly begins with this very gradual um, invasion of Britain um, by, by Romans, including actually Caesar gave it a go a couple of times. <laughs> but the really first truly effective um, and complete invasion of Britain happened in 43 AD. And this was, you know, much like we just discussed with Gaul and other parts of Europe that the Romans got set their eye on. It was a really calculated and um, protracted campaign uh, effort to get, to get in there. And what I'm going to talk about today is probably the most famous and really most wild uh, story that came to be following this Roman invasion, and it's the story of Boudicca. Boudicca was born um, actually shortly before the Romans effectively invaded Britain, and she would have been a member of the aristocracy. She was a part of the Icemi tribe of Celts, and which were located around in the area in the area of Norfolk, uh, which is today would be Norfolk. Um, and as a you know, a, kind of a member of the aristocratic aristocratic class. She would have been um, very highly trained. She would have been very ed well educated, and she actually would even have been trained in warfare. And she would have been um, able to wield a sword and a spear. And what ended up happening to Boudicca is she married the man who'd become king. And following the um, very efficient invasion of Britain by the Romans, there were actually only two kings who were allowed to continue being kings in Britain at this time. And her husband, who went by the name of Persuticus, who I'm probably just going to call Gus. We'll call him Gus. <laughs> we'll call him Gus. We're talking about Persuticus. <laughs> But it's Gus. But it's Gus. King We're pretty Gus. sure that's what Boudicca called him. <laughs> Gussie. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was one of the two kings in Britain, in this part of Britain anyway, who was kind of allowed to retain his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of that he was able to do that because he was conciliatory towards, towards the Romans. And he, like you were talking about before, kind of embraced this whole economic Romanization uh, tool, tactic that the Romans used. And her husband, Prasuticus, Gus, um, took out a lot of loans from the Romans. He really liked to live large. He really basically um, took advantage, took major advantage yeah. of the fact that, hey, all right, I've got this sweet deal. I just capitulated to the Romans, and now I get money, and I've got all the wine I want, and I'm, I'm great. <laughs> I'm sure he was also seeing like rival tribes in Britain sort of get slaughtered by the Romans too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a vested interest in, yeah. uh, the, the Romans weren't exactly, 
known for, you know, having, being soft on crime, so to speak. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they, I mean, it was a better move for him. And one of the very interesting things about the IC me is that they're unlike in, in Rome, they were extremely patriarchal society and only allowed, um, property and titles to be passed, um, through the male line. Uh, that was not the case for the Celts. And so Boudicca, who was queen at the time, um, we don't know a lot about her before this event. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that she was extremely anti-Roman. Um, and part of one of the reasons for this is that when her husband, Gus, died, he left a will. And the will said, I leave my property and my kingdom to my two daughters and to the Roman emperor, who mm. I think at the time was either Claudius Nero. or Nero. I'm pretty sure it was oh, Nero. Wow. Yeah. And so it didn't matter. The fact remains that the Romans said, nope, we are not listening to what you've requested. And essentially the lands of the Iceni were, uh, like you said, Tori, essentially annexed by the Romans. Mm -hmm. And to make a really horrific point as to how little the Romans cared about uh, uh, Gus's... Um, you know, wishes post-mortem, they flogged Boudicca and they raped her daughters viciously. And this was a, Shit. yeah. So this was a, a pretty vicious way to basically say, nope, <laughs> we are not listening at all to what your will said. Also at this point in time, it was a lot easier for them to quickly respond to things that happened because they had governors in basically every province that they controlled. Uh, yes. Uh, the, in this case, the governor was... Um, Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, Paulinus, and um, we definitely will get back to him in a minute. But after um, the Roman forces essentially annexed this kingdom land and you know brutalized um, Gus's wife and daughters, things sort of quieted down. But at least that's what the Romans thought. And what ended up happening is when Paulinus led a campaign. Um, out in, I think, like Wales or something, mm -hmm. um, Boudicca rallied all, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, of Celts, um, not just from the Iceni tribe, but from other tribes as well. And there's some conflicting reports. Either said that she led this, and then so they became the war leader, and she was also in another, in another report, said that she had been elected um, to lead this battle, to lead this war. But the point being, this woman, who had just you know recovered from an unbelievably uh, horrific experience, yeah. both for herself and for her yeah. daughters, became a like a you know a, a, a tribal war leader. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild, and so what ended up happening is she got this her army together, which they didn't have a whole lot of resources actually. So there were a lot of people who didn't even have proper weapons. They had spears hmm. and they had farming implements, and they were you know essentially a, what we might think of as a a rabble of peasants and um, barbarians, I guess is what the Romans would say. Yep. She oh. led two major battles where she burned to the ground uh, what was then London and what was then Colchester. Wow. And these were two major Roman strongholds. And much like what you were talking about with Vercingetorix, who enacted a scorched earth policy, she um, brutally slaughtered. Romans living in those towns as well as people who had sympathized with the Romans and Celts who they con she considered traitors. And so there are some reports um, coming back from like the Romans really taking exception to her horrific tactics, which is kind of unbelievably hypocritical. Right. It's ironic that they're like, whoa, this lady is brutal. And they're yeah. like, well, you raped her daughters and beat her in public. I, I mean, I don't know yeah. what expect in return. Yeah. Yeah. And what, so... Yeah. 
what ended up happening um, is that she she had numbers on her side, but mm-hmm. not the skill and not the weapons and not the discipline of the Roman legions. And so after Colchester and after London, um, they met again. Uh, and by this point, Paulinus came back and he had his legionaries and they were able to violently subdue this rebellion and Boudicca uh there's there's two potential ends for Boudicca she either died of illness potentially from a from a a wound received in the battles or she took poison and died um rather than you know submit and maybe suffer the same fate (laughs) as uh, as Vix and, and being taken back to Rome. And so this, there's a couple of crazy things about this is that, first of all, um, this is pretty wild for the Romans to be facing a, a woman leading an army against them. And not only that, but from all the accounts that we have from Roman historians, she was like, incredibly super you know, physically imposing. She was tall and had a shade of tawny hair and mm. she wore a you know cloth of many colors and had this golden uh called a torque which was like a, a decorative and like she was just incredibly imposing. oh yeah a torque it was like a very like a thick gold bracelet. yeah something yeah, like yeah. that yeah mm. and um so we don't know how um how accurate this is there's also some reports later of her having um implored to the goddess Andraste, um mm. you know and set like loose a hair or something that was going to divine the direction of the battle that sounds Greek. Andraste? I thought so too, but it's actually Celtic. Yeah, Celtic goddess of war. Yeah. So we don't know how true it is because, again, this story is so fantastic that, and the Romans have a tendency to try and build up their enemies to make their victory look better. Um, so, like, for, you know, we were talking before right. about numbers. We don't really know how many people Julius Caesar faced because Julius Caesar having one would be like, oh, yeah, there was, like, a million people out there. Like and there was only, like, five of us. Have you guys seen my biceps? It was, it was <laughs> me, Cicero's bro, and Mark <laughs> Antony. We just took down those goals. Yeah. yeah pretty much, yeah. So one of the um, so one of the really interesting things, too, is that in, in light of this, uh, we, obviously, as a modern society, find this story really compelling. It's kind of crazy to think of this Celtic warrior woman leading a battle again righteously against the Romans, the invading force who had horribly uh, brutalized her and her daughters. And what's crazy about this is that, to some extent, Roman historians talking about this event had the same opinion. Mm-hmm. So Tacitus, who was a historian, and he's one of two that kind of talked about this um, this whole Boudicca's rebellion, he in, kind of either invented or maybe hearsay um, speeches that she made, one of which was, quote, We British are used to women commanders in war. I am descended from mighty men, but I am not fighting for my kingdom and wealth now. I am fighting as an ordinary person for my lost freedom, my bruised body, and my outraged daughters. Consider how many of you are fighting and why. Then you will win this battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, plan to do. Let the men live in slavery if they will. Wow. Um, it's really it's really crazy. And again, the chances that she actually said this are very, very slim. Now, did she maybe address her men and rally them to fight? Sure. Did she deliver an impassioned feminist speech? <laughs> I kind of doubt it. Um, but the fact that Tacitus imagined that she did right. is really cool. And it's really interesting to imagine what he, coming from an incredibly patriarchal society... Uh, is is thinking and what all of the Romans must have been thinking, hearing the stories of this tall, tawny, paired was there um, woman. Was there maybe a sense in the Romans that they had kind of botched it by 
acting so brutally that they could have had a smoother transition if they had not done that to her. And well, her funny you should say that, Marco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically what happened is after Boudicca's rebellion was um, subdued, uh, the governor, Paulinus, lost his shit. <laughs> and he murdered and enslaved thousands and thousands and thousands. And in fact, his reaction was so over the top that he was recalled wow. from Britain. And we don't know exactly from whom the order came, but considering that at the time the emperor was Nero, I, I was telling Tori earlier Classic. that... Kianius. Classic Kianius. The new procurator. Yeah. So yeah. considering at the time, if you're a governor and you're doing your thing and Nero thinks that you're too harsh. Yeah. <laughs> like Nero's like, whoa, man, slow your roll. Then you know you've got a problem. <laughs> I just want to burn down all of Rome. Yeah. You're like being really mean. Yeah. <laughs> but after, after yeah. all this scorched earth and all this stuff, yeah. there was like decades of famine and mm -hmm. the whole region was like really in pretty rough shape. And the subsequent governors that were put in place after this guy who was removed um, really tried to pursue policy of peace like reconciliation yeah. almost like, like almost like reconciliation and they actually suspended roman expansion mm -hmm. um like f for this book says a decade i don't know given there's probably lots of different sources but um that's pretty huge considering that they, they yeah decided to like leave people alone in you know northern britain and ireland for a while which may have been why we we still have celtic culture in those areas yeah I mean, and the thing is, she she did lead her her men to victory twice, and yeah, <laughs> and so I mean, she's had a pretty enduring impact on British society. She, I mean, a lot, actually during the reign of Queen Victoria, she was referenced a lot because Queen Victoria obviously was like the longest reigning monarch in British history. And after shortly after Victoria died, they actually erected a statue of Boudicca, and um, one of the things that she's she's become very much of a very romantic figure of this wronged woman um, leading, you know, a vast army of wronged people. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and just to, to go back to this idea of what the Romans thought of her, there's actually another um, another historian five and a half centuries later who may, we don't know for sure, but could have been referring to Boudicca when he talked about, quote, a treacherous lioness butchered the governors who had been left to give fuller voice and strength to the endeavors of Roman rule. <laughs> so it's just it's a pretty crazy story um unfortunately it was unsuccessful but at the same time they did have an impact and like like tori was saying a minute ago romans kind of said whoa <laughs> whoa back yeah. off let me let me slow down Gotta and consider our, my actions change here. our policy a little bit yeah. yeah and and so it's uh, a pretty amazing story and i, I think it's it's funny too that boudicca is used so much um it's the celts create a lot of memorable people because um so the same way Boudicca is used, actually Napoleon used Vercingetorix as mm -hmm. sort of a symbol for the French Republic. And it's sort of, it's a weird symbol because he was a losing general. Mm -hmm. But I think... So was Napoleon. <laughs> at the end. I mean, he had a good streak going there. And the, yeah. there's a major, there's a huge statue of him, uh, of Vercingetorix at Elysia today. It's made out of copper. It's giant. He looks very epic and has pretty much one of the bushiest and best mustaches of um, <laughs> But I think Napoleon wanted to use it as a symbol of French unity. So this old Gallic general became a symbol of the Republic, and in the same way that Victoria and Boudicca. And it's also not just Napoleon. I mean, the Vercingetorix, 
Is that right? Yeah, you're saying it right, Kellen. <laughs> okay. Don't worry about it. You got it. Yeah. Mercedes uh, <laughs> is also a figure who appears in the long-running French cartoon Asterix and Obelix, mm-hmm. and oh. they're actually uh, it's it's a great series of cartoons, but they are Gallic two Gallic people living in a Gallic village fighting against, in really comical ways, almost like a proto-mash type of thing yeah. uh, against the Roman invaders. And so they have their druid who can, like, cast spells and give them strength and they can fight back. And it's very much like a Tom and Jerry comedy of errors sometimes with how they try to fight back against the bumbling Roman legionaries and stuff. And so it's definitely enduring in modern culture is the, the incredible impact. Even lose losing generals and this losing you know warrior woman even though they lost they are still major have major impacts on modern culture and especially in france and britain today yeah and there's like this weird sense of pride and like well we tried to fight the romans and we made a good go of it even mm-hmm. though we lost and so there's, yeah there's pride in that so now the celts so the celts we talk about today i want to come back to this question of who are the celts then mm-hmm. so i mean what would you say well i mean i think we we touched on it here and there but uh, when the Roman Empire collapsed and the Franks and the Visigoths and the other Germanic peoples kind of descended upon mainland Europe, there was very, very few places left untouched. But uh, those place, some of those places were Brittany um, on the western coast of France and um, the British Isles. And so what we have left, I think, of the, of the Celts is really centered on those places, with the exception of the archaeological. Yeah, so I think the place that we were just talking about where um, this Boudicca's revolt happened is on the very far east side of the British Isle. Mm-hmm. And on the west side, that's where you have places like Wales and um, that type of culture is left like in Brittany and then in Ireland. We're looking, I'm looking at a pretty cool map that kind of, it's like a, almost a straight line like where the Romans stopped invading and yeah. Celtic language still survives. Like you can see the longitude, the longitude line that, that separates the yeah. Celtic and non-Celtic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, that's one of the things that is kind of cool because I've been to Brittany and I've been to Brest and there's, an, an, you know, we talked, we touched on it earlier where there's this incredible, incredible commercialization of this popular notion of Celtic culture. But at the same time, like in the text that we've looked at, there's some traditions that, definitely are, are Celtic and pagan in origin that have maybe been a little bit bastardized by the the impact of Christianity and and these other um, peoples that came through, but they definitely have still some, some cultural impact in these places. A big uh, resurgence in interest came in the, the 19th century when you had a lot of independence movements in mm-hmm. Scotland and Ireland and Wales resisting that centralizing British force to, to unify the islands. So that's where you see a lot of new texts going back and looking at Celtic folklore and, and these Roman records of the Celts and trying to build an identity for these people that mm-hmm. would justify them remaining independent. But certainly the idea of Celts seems to have changed depending on who's telling the story majorly. Mm-hmm. So you have these Celtic tribes in Central Europe who the Romans were fighting. or Before that, you have these people coming down into Greece and trying to resettle. Or even the yeah. Galatians... Yeah, the appearing Galatians. in the in the Bible actually, right? Who were the, the descendants who, of Celts. Exactly. Yeah, the, yeah Galatians and Turkey mm-hmm. and yeah. So I mean, the the influence is really widespread, and even though all we have left of them is is primarily focused in Ireland and just the British Isles in general, and this one tiny sliver of France, um, they have had a pretty remarkable impact, not just on modern culture, but they've obviously you know artistically they we found pieces of them all over Europe 
parts of parts of Asia. So it's a pretty remarkable story. I'm glad that we looked into it. Um, but that was History on the Rocks. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can find us at historyontherocks.com or on Twitter, at hist on the rocks, and I am the bad historian, so you can tweet me at, at bad historian. Uh, Adequate historian didn't have the same ring to it. It didn't. It was already <laughs> taken. It was a bummer. It was a bummer. Uh, so I am Marco. I'm Kellen. And I'm Tori. Thanks for listening. Dun, 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 dun.